When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, looking forward to another week of scripture study with you. Before we dive into the Doctrine and Covenants today, I, I needed to make a quick announcement uh, based on a change that YouTube has, has uh, thrown our way. For those of you who are watching on, on Facebook or listening to the podcast, this doesn't affect you at all. Uh, but YouTube has decided to take advantage of the fact that it's their company and they can do whatever they want. Uh, they sent uh, us creators a, an email saying that they are taking advantage of their platform and it is now uh, their, their right to add commercials to the beginning of any and every video that they choose. Which is frustrating to me. From the very beginning I have made a conscious decision not to and never to monetize this. Uh, I work a lot with people who are struggling in their faith and sometimes skepticism turns into cynicism which is a tragic step in my opinion. Skepticism is simply, I have a hard time believing what you're saying. And I understand when you're talking about the miraculous and the divine and the spiritual. Uh, if you're not in tune with that spirit or haven't had those experiences yourself, then they are hard to believe, admittedly. Uh, but when skepticism turns to cynicism, it's no longer, I doubt what you're saying. Now it's, I doubt your motives. And I don't trust you as an individual. And that's, and that's a scary place to be just as far as relationships are concerned. But uh, as one who tries to help people through those kinds of challenges, I never wanted to be a source of, of cynicism for anyone else. If you remember Alma chapter 30, when Korahor uh, and Alma are going mano a mano, uh, perhaps the most famous antichrist of the Book of Mormon was Korahor. And that's one of the things he says, was he tries to, to shred Kor uh, te uh, Alma's testimony. He accuses him of having ulterior motives. Of, of preaching the gospel only to get gain. And that's when Alma says, it's just beautiful verse in Alma 30, verse 34, that really, you, you think that's what I'm doing this for? He says, you know I don't make a, a senine. I don't make a penny for what I'm doing here, which leaves you with the real answer that the only reason I do this is so that I can rejoice in the joy of my brethren. And that's the whole reason I do this. And why I do podcasts and firesides and interviews and, and, and you name it. Just sitting down one-on-one -on -one with people that I've never met to try to help them navigate the life of faith in a world of doubt. I want to rejoice in your joy. And so it's honestly frustrating for me that YouTube is adding commercials at the beginning of these videos. That they want to monetize the channel even though I do not. I was actually asked a while ago to explain a little bit about the restored gospel to the kind of headquarters of a multinational company that was trying to do some interfaith kinds of things so that employees could understand one another as far as where they're coming from religiously. And when they asked me to do it, and I readily agreed, any chance to, to share the truth, right? Uh, but when I agreed, they asked about honorariums and, and how much do you charge for these kinds of things. And I just laughed and I said, you must not know very many Latter-day Saints uh, because we pretty much do everything for free. Yeah, you need, you need to help moving into your new house. You need help packing up and moving out. You need you know, service. That's really where we're coming from. 
all those yellow uh, Mormons helping hands. I don't know what they call them now. Uh, Latter-day Saints helping hands, disciples of Christ helping hands, who knows. Uh, but we do all of that for free. And why do we do it? Because God has freely given all things to us. And if we can freely give things to others, that's part of our consecration as we're studying in the Doctrine and Covenants. We simply want to rejoice in the joy of our brethren. It's a lot like that parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And rather than haggle over the penny appointed, and I worked longer than somebody else, in the best case scenario, we say to the master of the vineyard, keep your penny. Can I just come back and work more tomorrow? To be able to work alongside the Lord of the vineyard, to see the fruits of our labors, especially in the lives of those that we're trying to teach or to serve or to bless. That, that beats a penny any day. So do me a favor and ignore those, those commercials when they come on. Uh, hit skip commercials or skip ads, whatever the, the button is, as quickly as you can. And let's get on to bigger and better things, namely the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this week, we're going to be studying section 63. Only one revelation this week. Uh, in some ways, I think they could have tacked it on to the previous lesson or next week's lesson. But perhaps they're giving us a little time to, to come up for air. Uh, every once in a while, I'll get comments from you uh, watchers and or viewers and listeners and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm behind. I'm not caught up yet. And I always think, well, it's, you're never behind. Uh, if you're studying the scriptures, I, I used to say this to my seminary students, that, well, I, well, what if I don't finish the entire you know, book this year? And I said, if, if you're still in 1 Nephi by the end of the, at the end of the year, but you've been spending time in a consistent way, intensely studying God's word, then that's, that's A-plus scripture study habits as far as I'm concerned. It's not how fast we can get through things. Uh, and again, I'm not exactly helping you with the length of these, le these lessons. Uh, but per perhaps today, ours will be short enough that you can go back and, and get caught up if, that's, if you're feeling behind. Just keep making progress as you study the Word of God. Now in section 63, well, let's, let's look back. If you remember, we've been having a lot of travel uh, and journey revelations. Joseph and the saints were gathering in Ohio, and then he sent some people down to Missouri. Uh, there's some revelations about wh what's going to happen along the way. Joseph Smith himself, along with others, goes down to Missouri and, and receives more revelations there in Zion. In fact, it's there in Missouri that, they, that it's confirmed to them that this is the ultimate gathering place. The center place is going to be Independence, Jackson County, Missouri. And then last week, we had some revelations on the journey home. Now, that, that really helps those that are making these, these journeys with Joseph. Uh, and how do we go? And what do we learn here? And then how do we come back home? But meanwhile, there are, you know, meanwhile, back on the ranch, there are people back in Ohio that have not been around for any of that. And in a day before internet uh, or emails or anything like that, it's, they're going to have to wait on Joseph's return, not just to continue receiving revelation from him, but to get caught up, speaking of being behind, uh, on those revelations that he received while he was gone. So most of the sections we've been studying for the past several weeks, they're not news to us, but they were news for the saints in Ohio when Joseph returned. In fact, most likely, the most exciting thing for the Ohio saints would be the confirmation that Zion has been identified. We actually saw some hints of that in earlier revelations, where the Lord's like, oh, I'm not going to tell you quite yet. But there's this anticipation, this, this eagerness on their part to learn the will of the Lord and put a pin in the map and say, that's really where we're going to be gathering. 
Now, when Joseph Smith makes it back to Ohio, remember last week when we talked about them leaving Independence and crossing speedily on the Missouri River and then getting off the river and get to uh, St. Louis as quickly as you can and then on to Cincinnati and preach among the congregations of the wicked and, and, and eventually find your way back home. You've got a mission there to perform as well. Now, it's been about two and a half months that Joseph's been gone. But when he returns to Ohio and lets the saints there know, we now know where the center spot of Zion will be, the ultimate gathering place. If you remember a couple weeks ago in section 51, when they were told there in Ohio, this will only be a temporary landing spot, uh, that this will be a little season that you will gather here. But act on the land as for years. Now, that part of the, the council is going to be even harder to obey now because they know where the ultimate gathering place is, and they're not there. And so there's kind of, my body's here, but my mind is there. I'm I'm trying to serve a mission here, but I really want to be serving it there. It's been interesting to talk to missionaries these days, many of whom were called somewhere else and then got reassigned because of COVID. I was doing a Zoom uh, mission conference a while back, and it was interesting to talk to these missionaries about their challenges. and, And so many of them that had been reassigned were talking about how much they love where they're serving currently, and their mission president and their companions and especially the people that they're teaching. But that there's a part of them, their heart is still off in, in Ecuador or Japan or Madagascar or whatever they were called originally. And you get a kind of a sense of that in these sections where you have these Ohio saints now that they know that Zion is elsewhere. It's, a, it's going to be a tricky thing to act on the land as for years, like we saw in section 51, when their heart oh, longs to be in Zion. That's kind of what's on everybody's mind by the time you get to section 63. And as we talked about a week or two ago, you have some uh, saints in Ohio that are jumping the gun. It was supposed to be slow and steady settlement in Missouri. Gradual growth, right? Purchase the land and do that based on the consecration of the saints in Ohio. Can then purchase the lands in Missouri. And then as called upon through proper priesthood channels, the prophet receives that revelation. Your family is now to go and and settle in in Missouri. Bishop Partridge will be there waiting for you with a, a land inheritance as you've consecrated. And now you can receive your stewardship from him. It would have been a well-oiled machine if they would have done, had, have done things in the Lord's way. However, like we pointed out, that, that many jumped the gun and were just rushing off to Zion when, when there, had not had, there hadn't been enough consecrated to be able to make things work. They were hurrying to be in Zion and, and short-circuiting the, the long and steady and patient and sometimes grueling task of becoming Zion. Believe me, there is work to be done in Ohio, and a lot of it has to do with making us into the kind of saints that will be able to settle Zion. We're overcoming the natural man. We're learning to be patient and have faith. We're learning to consecrate and and do things with whatever stewardship has been given. The Ohio saints were being tested with their five talents and two talents and one talent. Don't rush ahead to become ruler of many things when you haven't yet learned the things you're supposed to learn by being a steward over a few small things. We'll see some chastisement today in section 63. And that's what the Lord has in mind. Those are the ones he's got his eye on. Those that are, that are short-circuiting the system, trying to change their location when they haven't yet mastered a Zion lifestyle. Now to further set the stage, look at the chapter heading, or the section heading of section 63. And see if our attitude here in the 21st century uh, approximates their attitude there in the middle of the 19th. 
It says that in these infant days of the church, there was a great anxiety to obtain the word of the Lord upon every subject that in any way concerned our salvation. Is that still the case with us today? Are we anxious to obtain the word of God on anything related to our salvation? Or have spiritual matters become kind of compartmentalized and, and relegated to our Sunday side gig? Are we, do we care more about uh, what the latest news, politics, or our finances, or our favorite sports team, whatever it might be? These saints are eager to learn, anxious to obtain any word that God might have for them about their salvation. The chapter heading goes on, as the land of Zion was now the most important temporal object in view, now that they know where it is, I inquired of the Lord for further information upon the gathering of the saints and the purchase of the land and other matters. Interesting that the land of Zion, as, as described there, was their chiefest temporal concern. Now we could take that both positively and negatively. On the positive side, it's like that's what we're focused on. We want to get to Zion. And the same should be true of us. Again, does that still apply? Is Zion still our most important concern? But when it calls it its temporal concern, that's where the negative possibility arises. Because remember, yes, Zion is a temporal concern. There's physical land that needs to be purchased. But it's also a spiritual concern. And that's the address versus attitude kind of dichotomy, the location versus lifestyle. Because if Zion is simply the temporal side of things, I want to get there. And the quicker I can get them, the land hopefully will be, will be cheaper. I, uh, it, we're going to about to have this, this land rush. The housing market's going to boom. So if I can get in on this on the ground level and get, I mean, if everybody's going to be gathering there, I want, I want dibs. I want first choice. And as we'll see today in section 63, if it's only a temporal concern, at the expense of the spiritual realities that undergird everything there is to know about Zion, then there's going to be some chastisement on its way. And the saints will receive some of that today. It doesn't take them long to receive it. Look at section 63, verse 1. Hearken, O ye people, and open your hearts and give ear from afar. You that are afar off, they're nearly a thousand miles away in Ohio. And listen, you that call yourselves the people of the Lord, and hear the word of the Lord and his will concerning you. Now, as we've seen so many times in the Doctrine and Covenants, the first verse of many sections begin with a word like hearken and have words like listen inside. This is God speaking anew in this dispensation, and he wants the world to listen up. But that phrase in the middle, who is supposed to hearken and give ear and hear the word of the Lord? It's those who call themselves the people of the Lord. Now that's interesting. It's one thing for them, for the Lord to say, ye people of the Lord, listen to me. But another thing to say, you that call yourselves the people of the Lord. You can, can you get a sense of what the Lord might be hinting at here? Especially when he says, not only give ear, but open your hearts. I mean, believe me, their ears perked up as soon as Joseph Smith said, Zion is going to be Independence, Missouri. But have they opened their hearts to be changed? Do they have a, a broken heart and a contrite spirit to offer the Lord so that they will respond to the call when it comes from the Lord instead of some kind of call of covetousness, wanting to rush there and, and grab up the land as soon as they can? You have to become true saints. You've got to become a Zion people before you go to a Zion place. 
It's actually something that Isaiah said to his people. And that Nephi quotes from Isaiah to talk to Laman and Lemuel about. The verse in question says, They call themselves of the holy city, but they do not stay themselves upon the God of Israel. See the difference? I mean, they say, I'm a card-carrying member of the house of Israel. This is like John the Baptist when he says, oh, Who cares? You, you say you're the house of Israel? Look at the stones at your feet. God can raise up from these stones children unto Abraham. Who cares about the family name? If you're not living up to the expectations that name is meant to convey. In Isaiah's case, yes, your address is in Jerusalem, the holy city. But do you stay yourself? Do you lean on? Do you rely upon the God of Israel the way you should? It's like Paul's warning to the Romans. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. I sense that the Lord is dropping that hint in section 63, verse 1. You that call yourselves the people of the Lord, they are not all saintly who are of the saints. They are not all Zion who want to head off to Zion. Do we live up to the divine reputation that we are claiming for ourselves? The saints still had some growing up to do. I think we all do. Now, verse 2, Verily I say, Hear the word of him whose anger is kindled against the wicked and rebellious. So this is still part of the introduction of this revelation. The Lord is still introducing himself to his hearers. But pretty strong language he uses in, in describing himself. I'm the one whose anger is kindled against the wicked and rebellious. Now, last week we talked about these saints being sent on missions as they head back home to Ohio and preaching among the congregations of the wicked. So is that who the Lord's referring to? Well, maybe. But then again, we also saw there was all kinds of friction as they were uh, going along the Missouri River. And by the time Joseph and the other saints uh, returned to Ohio, there's been all kinds of apostasy there. Seems like every time that the saints are left without their leaders, things start uh, becoming problematic. I mean, the, the, the cat's away and so the mice come out to play. Remember, we saw that with the context of section 50. You got all these brand new converts in, in the Kirtland area with no leadership. And so they're starting to fall prey to false spirits instead of discerning true ones. Well, the, the, we've still got problems. I mean, Joseph's been gone for two and a half months, and by the time he gets back, it's like, seriously? Uh, the wickedness and rebellion is taking place among apostate saints there in Ohio as well. So this revelation in large part is going to be a call of repentance to them. Verse 3, who willeth, so the Lord's still speaking of himself, who willeth to take even them who he will take, and preserveth in life them whom he will preserve. You see the Lord asserting his will there? Who willeth to take whoever he will? This is still part of this idea of the prophet will let you know where you're going to settle. For the next seven years or so, we will have two church headquarters. There will be one in, in Kirtland, Ohio, and another in Independence, Missouri. There's already been talk of temples in both locations. But by now, everybody knows that the ultimate gathering place will be in Missouri. So what do we do with those who are in this temporary holding pattern in Ohio? Well, I'm going. Oh, careful. I, I'm, I'm willing to take those who I'm willing to take. Don't go until I call you. Then in verse 4, still speaking of himself, who buildeth up at his own will and pleasure, and destroyeth when he pleases, and is able to cast the soul down to hell. Again, he's the one in charge. 
He builds and destroys. He commands and revokes. He tells some to go speedily and others not in haste. Trust the Lord's individualized commandments for you. Be careful not to overcorrect as you go from slothfulness to anxiously engaged. Don't be over-anxious to the point of getting ahead of the prophet. Trust the Lord's will and pleasure rather than, than succumbing to your own. Verse 5, Behold, I, the Lord, utter my voice, and it shall be obeyed. Remember, that's what he said about Zion when they were there. That I will be obeyed in this land. My law will be kept here. Otherwise, I don't care if you have the right address, the right coordinates on the map. It's still not Zion unless the pure in heart are living there. So you want to go build Zion? You want to go be in Zion? Then become Zion along the way. I speak, I utter my voice, it has to be obeyed. If you ever intend to be crowned with commandments, not a few, you've got to master the commandments, the the lowest common denominator commandments that I've given universally to the entire church. Now these first five verses are the Lord's introduction to this section. And it's the way he wants to be introduced himself. With that in mind then, this is definitely the God of justice Uh, rather than the God of mercy. He is always the God of both, okay? Proving contraries, striking perfect balance at all times. But in this situation, the saints at this point in section 63 need to be reminded of a God of justice and judgment, one who requires their obedience and the offering of their own will. With all that in mind then, here comes the revelation itself. Verse 6, Wherefore, verily I say, Let the wicked take heed, and let the rebellious fear and tremble, and let the unbelieving hold their lips. For the day of wrath shall come upon them as a whirlwind, and all flesh shall know that I am God. Remember that beautiful verse back in section 43. How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not? And and what kind of clucking has the hen been using? Uh, The voice of mercy? He's so many of the, every section last week, 60, 61, 62, you heard the voice of mercy from the Lord. But if that's the only voice we hear, and we start presuming upon his grace, as Paul once warned us about, that we think of God as a pushover because he's so nice and eternally merciful to the point that I don't even try to obey anymore. Or the the phrase you often hear today, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Well, maybe that's what these saints are thinking. I I don't need permission to go to Zion early. I'll get forgiveness once I get there. But again, you see the problem from a temporal standpoint? They're not ready for you. Poor Bishop Partridge there, like scrambling. We haven't received enough consecration to be able to pass out stewardships. This is not the way things are supposed to go. And the warning we saw previously also, that if you don't obtain Zion by, by purchase, then it's going to end up being by blood. We'll see that again today in section 63. And that is not what the Lord intended. So if section 60, 61, 62 are pulling the pendulum towards mercy, 63 is yanking it back towards justice as God tries to help us stay in the Goldilocks zone of understanding a God who is perfect in both attributes. Now remember, that's part of the beauty of proving contraries. It establishes this spectrum across which we're all kind of wandering at any given point in our life. And if you're already on the side of justice and you keep reading just verses that scare you to death, understand that you're not the immediate audience for these kinds of texts. 
If you're the type that's so easygoing, merciful on yourself, then be careful how you overread the kindness of Christ in section 60, 61, and 62. You might need a little nudge in the right direction from 63. I've said it, I've said it before. It's the perfectionists that need to read, don't run faster than you have strength. It's the lackadaisical that need to read, be therefore perfect. Those two groups, each that hold on to their favorite verse, need to switch verses every once in a while. And we either wake up or reassure their, their opposites. I hope this is making sense. Section 63, if you're a perfectionist and you're doing the very best you can, and you're already, you already uh, think of God as, as just far more than you think of Him as merciful, then be careful how you apply these verses in section 63 to yourself. He said it himself in verse 6. He's talking to the wicked that need to take heed, the rebellious that need to fear and tremble, the unbelieving that need to hold their lips. If you are doing the best you can, if you're offering the Lord your broken heart and contrite spirit, then the words wicked and rebellious and unbelieving don't apply to you. So go back and remind yourself of the mercy of Christ in, those, in last week's lesson. That he is able to make you holy. That he forgives your sins. That he knows the weakness of men. That he can succor those who are tempted. And if you're the type that by just force of personality tend to presume upon Christ's grace, then hearken and hear. Open your ears and your heart to the kinds of self-disclosure of Christ at the beginning of this revelation. If in your most humble and honest moments of self-reflection, words like wicked or rebellious or unbelieving cause a twinge of guilt, then stay humble and open your heart to the point that you can come to know a God that, yes, is so merciful and reassuring, but also topples tables at the temple when necessary. Someday all flesh shall know that He is God. We need to come to know Him, both sides of Him, along the way. Now verse 7, he begins a, a discussion of something he'll spend several verses on. And read it again in context of what the saints just saw when they got to Zion. Remember, this is the group. Some went and stayed and settled, like Edward Partridge. Uh, others sent, will go on to these missions on the way down, see it, have a meeting there, a conference, dedicate the land, and then come back, preaching along the way. And remember that all-important verse that we saw a couple of weeks ago, section 58, verse 3, that you can't limit yourself to seeing things through the natural eyes and for the present time. It has to be spiritualized and with an eternal perspective. Remember Ezra Booth, who becomes one of the original anti-Mormons. He's the one that went down, saw Zion, realized that there was not much to see, and then came home so disappointed and disillusioned that he wanted to bring the rest of the people out of the church just like as, as he was leaving. The Ezra Booth letters which later became a kind of a foundational part of one of the first anti-Mormon texts, a book called Mormonism Unveiled. I've read that. That was an interesting one. But it's this description of Zion, whether place or people, in the most negative possible light. If you remember, Sidney Rigdon was supposed to write a description of Zion and to do so through the eye of faith. This is what it will be. This is the ideal. Well, Ezra Booth only saw the real, and he wasn't satisfied by it. No eye of faith, just natural eyes. No eternal perspective, just for the present time. 
And so read the next few verses uh, with, with an eye to, to Ezra Booth himself. Verse 7, He that seeketh signs shall see signs, but not unto salvation. Or if, if you're wanting, the, you're wanting proof, you want to you witness the miraculous, fine, it'll be there. Miracles take place all around us where there is faith. But remember that faith precedes the miracle. And perhaps the miracle came because of someone else's faith, but your faith doesn't come as a result of the miracle. Your, your conviction might. You might be convinced by it. It's a sign. You'll see it, but not unto salvation. Again, it's jumping the gun. It's moving to Zion before you've become Zion. It's beholding a sign before you exercised faith to bring the sign forth. That actually speaks perfectly to Ezra Booth's own experience. You see, he was a Methodist minister before he joined the church. Uh, he had been together with the, with the Johnsons, John and Elsa. Jo John Johnson, the farm is famous uh, it's where Joseph and Emma would stay for a while when they're li living in Ohio. But Elsa Johnson, jo uh, John's wife, had a lame arm. And at one point, uh, they were in this meeting, they were talking about spiritual gifts, kind of Section 46 kind of material. And somebody wondered, well, are, do those gifts, are they still in, in function today? I mean, look at sister, poor Sister Johnson. Could a spiritual gift, could the power of healing actually work to, to return strength to her lame arm? Well, the conversation turned to other things. But then later on, kind of out of the blue, Joseph Smith, who was there, simply stood up and walked over to Elsa Johnson. And, and channeling his own faith and calling upon hers, very solemnly said, took her by the arm and said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command your arm to be whole. And then he walked out of the room. And people were just shocked and in awe of what, what's the, the presumption of this man? Or, but did it work? And when someone asked Elsa Johnson how her hand was, she, she stretched her arm forth and said, it, it works as well as the other. She was healed. And Ezra Booth was amazed to the point that he joined the church. He saw the sign, but not unto salvation, because for him the order was off. For Elsa Johnson, it was faith and then the miracle. For Ezra Booth, it was the miracle. And then, well, I guess there was no need for faith. I mean, I saw it. Elsa Johnson saw her arm healed through the eye of faith first. Ezra Booth was able to, to rest assured on the eye of flesh. And it was that same eye that he used when he journeyed down to Missouri and looked around and beheld with the natural eye alone. There were no signs yet that this, this desert, spiritually speaking, would blossom as the rose. There was no sign that this, this frontier outpost and the edge of civilization would someday become the city of God, the new Jerusalem. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it with the eye of faith because he had never had to exercise faith in the unseen before. He sought a sign, and he saw it, but it wasn't unto his salvation. So be careful, all of you saints who have joined the church. Again, which is first here? Faith or fact? Spirit or sight? Patience or proof? Where are you basing your, your belief? Now, he goes on on this subject for several more verses. Verse 8, Verily I say unto you, there are those among you who seek signs, and there have been such even from the beginning. You can see signs seeking all through the Old Testament and on through the New. This is not a new problem. And Ezra Booth was simply the latest manifestation of this challenge. And evidently there were others like him. 
Verse 9, but behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. Again, order is key. You receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Faith precedes the miracle. Book of Abraham, he creates the earth spiritually before he creates it temporally. Sidney Rigdon, go down to Zion, see what it is, but then describe what it will be. Give a description based on the eye of faith. Ezra Booth comes home and gives a description based on the eye of fact, but only present fact. And the way doubt describes things compared to the way faith describes them, those are worlds apart. And which description will other people believe? In verse 10, Yea, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. I'm sure that's what was going through Joseph Smith's mind as he sat there as the conversation turned to other things. Heavenly Father, should I heal? Can I heal? Do I have permission to heal Elsa Johnson's arm? Is it your will? Honestly, any time a Melchizedek priesthood holder lays hands on the head for, for a blessing of healing, and they wonder, can I do this? The question of can hopefully is not a question of am I able, but rather am I allowed? What is the will of God here? Not what do I want or what does the, the patient want or what do the onlookers, the spectators want? And to me, I, I just picture Joseph pondering that in that moment. It's not by the will of men, not me, not Elsa, definitely not Ezra Booth. But Heavenly Father, what do you want? And, he, and Joseph had faith, Elsa had faith, and the sign followed. Ezra did not have faith. And therefore, it wasn't belief that came as a result. It was rather knowledge. It's like we talked about last year in 3 Nephi, that when the signs came of the day and the night and the day, there was no more room for doubt, which means there was no more room for faith. It was simply knowledge. They took the shortcut and it short-circuited the process that is supposed to strengthen and stretch our soul. That we keep seeing that. Don't short-circuit the process and just skip on down to Missouri before you've become Zion-like. Don't skip this spiritual wrestling and developing spiritual sight, eternal perspective, the, the view of faith. Don't just rush to a sign. And by sign, don't just think of some miracle that you want to see. So often in our intellectual day, we want empirical proof of everything. We want logical, rational evidence of everything there is. Again, that's, that's, that might work for knowledge, but it doesn't function for faith. And it's faith the Lord is after. Verse 11, he says that. Yea, signs come by faith unto mighty works. There's the order. Faith enabling mighty works. That's what provides the sign. For without faith, no man pleaseth God. And with whom God is angry, he is not well pleased. <laughs> There's the obvious. Wherefore, unto such he showeth no signs, only in wrath unto their condemnation. If you remember back to section 35, the saints were told that without faith shall not anything be shown forth except desolations upon Babylon. So yes, even the wicked and rebellious and unbelieving will see signs, but what sign of the time will they, will they be presented with? The destruction of Babylon. They'll see the great and spacious building fall. They'll feel it fall because they're the ones inside of it. And sadly, they missed all the more simple and subtle signs the Lord had given the faithful all along. So work on your faith and allow faith to generate these mighty works. 
That is what is pleasing unto God. Verse 12, Wherefore I, the Lord, am not pleased with those among you who have sought after signs and wonders for faith, and not for the good of men unto my glory. So that verse describes all the elements that underwrite a miracle. It's got to be a result of faith rather than a cause of faith, because then it wouldn't be faith. And it needs to be for the good of others. This is second great commandment. And God's glory. That's first great commandment. You see, Ezra Booth's quote-unquote witness seemed to be self-serving. Again, maybe that's why he joined that, that early mission to, uh, to go down and see Zion. I, I want to stake a claim early on. And when he got there and thought, thought wow, there's, there's no st- uh, stakes worth claiming, forget this. There was no faith. It wasn't for the good of others. And it wasn't for the glory of God. By the way, does that sound a little like Satan in premortality? I want the glory. So the part that I'm wanting to play in the plan and the, the change in the plan that I am trying to convince people to accept, it will require no faith on their part. It's just a guarantee, okay? Salvation for all, no agency to get in the way of things. You, you won't be the weak link in the chain anymore after all. Yeah, so no faith required. And I get all the glory, which means there is no glory to God. And since no agency on their part means no learning and growth on theirs, then it's not for the benefit of man either. Compare that to everything Jesus Christ did and does. Requiring faith so that we can build those spiritual muscles, doing everything for the good of his brothers and sisters, and all things for the glory of his Father in heaven. He's still following the same pattern here with the saints. Verse 13, Nevertheless, I give commandments, and many have turned away from my commandments and have not kept them. There's the wicked and rebellious and unbelieving we met a few verses ago. Verse 14, There were among you adulterers and adulteresses, some of whom have turned away from you, and others remain with you that hereafter shall be revealed. Now we're getting more specific as far as their sins are concerned. And yes, some have outed themselves already and turned away. Others will yet to be outed. Remember, if you confess your sins, then I, the Lord, will remember them no more. If you bring them out to him and to priesthood authority, then God will hide them. Whereas if you hide your sins, then they will be brought out into the open. And there's that warning there in verse 14 as well. Those adulterers who remain with you will be revealed hereafter. And interesting that he would speak of adulterers and adulteresses in the context of these last few verses that spoke about sign-seeking. Because what does the New Testament teach? That it is an adulterous generation that seeketh after a sign. There's actually an interesting story in church history where Joseph Smith was preaching and somebody was, a man was calling for a sign, prove it, prove it. And, the, and Joseph Smith invoked that verse. And said, it's only an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And you, my friend, are an adulterer. And he wasn't even speaking uh, figuratively. Literally, you are an adulterer. And someone else in the congregation rose, stood up and, and, and gave a second witness. Said, yes, I caught him in the very act. He is an adulterer. And the man leaves with his tail between his legs. But now that's the literal. And I wouldn't say that every sign seeker is a literal adulterer. But spiritually speaking, it's amazing in the Old Testament how often idolatry is linked to adultery. Because in both cases, it's an act of unfaithfulness. I'm not being faithful to my spouse, that's adultery. I'm not being faithful to my God, that's idolatry. Or a word that we can use for both, infidelity. Fide, in in that infidelity is faith. 
So you're being unfaithful. And what's the Lord asking of the saints here? To be faithful, to be full of faith, to believe, to see with the eye of faith, to look with an eternal perspective. So sign-seeking and adultery, symbolically speaking, there's some interesting parallels there. In adultery, am I unsatisfied with the covenant relationship that I'm in to the point that I am looking outside of it for, for proof that I'm desirable or for the satisfaction of lesser lusts? Spiritually speaking, am I content to stay within this covenant relationship? That God has given me evidence of his love and his blessings. But I created that covenant relationship before that. I believed. And then the evidence, the spiritual evidence came. That's marriage. That, that you are agreeing to, to form a relationship before any kind of marital intimacy. Adultery reverses the order. There is intimacy before there is a covenant relationship. Now to all those, the Lord says in verse 15, let such beware and repent. The mercy is always waiting in the wings. Repent speedily, lest judgment shall come upon them as a snare, and their folly shall be made manifest, and their works shall follow them in the eyes of the people. I mean, talk about sight. You're, you're a sign seeking. You want proof. You want evidence. I want to see that. Well, you're going to be seen for what you are. And folly made manifest, works following in the eyes of the people. That would come to pass for Ezra Booth and others as well. If, that is, they didn't repent. I, I, we've seen so much justice and judgment in this first page of section 63. But right there is the mercy shining through. Repent, repent speedily, and I, the Lord, will remember these things no more. Become Zion here, broken heart, contrite spirit, and the literal Zion will still await you. Then in verse 16, it's as if the Lord is saying, well, while we were on the subject of sign-seeking, which made me think of adultery, well, while we're on the subject of adultery, let me, let me reiterate the importance of being, of being pure and virtuous in that area as well. Verse 16, Verily I say unto you, as I have said before, back in section 42, he that looketh on a woman to lust after her, or if any shall commit adultery in their hearts, they shall not have the spirit, but shall deny the faith and shall fear. We talked a little bit about that in that prior revelation. But just as, as there are parallels between uh, physical adultery and spiritual adultery, or adultery and idolatry, as we see in our relationship to God, there is also literal and figurative adultery with the spouse that we're married to. And here it is looking with lust. That equates with adultery of the heart. And it's the heart that I'm trying to purify here. Without a pure heart, what ends up happening? You lose the spirit. What's the next step? You deny the faith. What's the ultimate step? You end up fearing God in the wrong way. The, the fear and trembling kind of, I, I'm scared to enter his presence, rather than the fear of God, the awe and reverence and respect. The, I, the I'm honored to enter God's presence. Again, Ezra Booth will be a poster boy for the end of verse 16 as well. Loss of the spirit, denial of the faith. Verse 17, wherefore I the Lord have said that the fearful and the unbelieving 
and all liars, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, and the whoremonger and the sorcerer shall have their part in that lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, please take all of that language, that strong language with the grain of salt that the Lord provided back in section 19. Oh, eternal torment? Everlasting punishment? That's not exactly what I meant. I, I said it that way so that it would work upon your heart in stronger terms. And with, with hardened hearts, you need stronger language to break them. Just ask Mormon about that. That without any strong language, the people just kind of rolled over and continued sinning. Well, to all of those who are guilty of any of the sins listed here, and it's the kind of list you recognize from Old and New Testament, beware and repent or you will suffer the second death, the second spiritual death. Samuel the Lamanite talked about this. Alma talked about this. That the first spiritual death was Adam and Eve and all of us posterity leaving God's presence, being cast out of Eden and its innocence. But when we are brought back into God's presence for judgment day, remember this, this whole introduction, I'm a God of justice and judgment. When we are brought back into his presence and Adam and Eve are off the hook, will we suffer a second spiritual death, cast out this time because of our poor choices, our sins, and not for Adam's transgression? Verse 18, he continues uh, passing judgment. Verily I say that they shall not have part in the first resurrection. That's the resurrection of the just. Instead, they will participate in the resurrection of the unjust at the end of the millennium. And then verse 19, And now behold, I the Lord say unto you that you are not justified because these things are among you. So justice from start to finish in this revelation so far, and justice to the point of not being justified. To be justified by the grace of Christ requires repentance on our part. It requires faith in his name, the kind of faith that produces signs, not the kind of pseudo-faith that, that emerges as a result of one. But notice also the way he said that in verse 19, Ye, that's the plural of you, okay, that's the y'all, if I were still in Tennessee, the, the all y'all, even better, okay, that's the, the best word for this, that's ye, okay, all y'all are not justified. Why? Because these things are among you. Now, among, he didn't say within. Now, for the wicked and the rebellious and the unbelieving, and the, the whoremongers and the, those who love and make a lie, and all those other people listed in verse 17, then yes, it is within you. But for all of you other saints, you're not justified either. Not all y'all, because these things are among you. Now, wait a minute. This is guilt by association. This is we collectively are not justified as a people because there are still sins and wickedness among us. Remember back in section one, I, I, I'm well pleased with the church, but only speaking collectively, not individually. Well, here you also get a sense that collectively I'm also concerned because collectively you're still allowing wickedness to be among you. Now, this is a, a fine balance we're trying to strike. We saw at the beginning of section 46 that visitors welcome does need to be etched in stone on the outside of our chapels. And if you're not worthy, then you can still come. Don't partake of the sacrament, but please come. We want everyone to feel welcome at church. But what's interesting about this is if the church collectively isn't justified for allowing this kind of sinfulness to be among us, then to channel Genesis, I hope we realize that we are our brother's keepers. That it's not enough to repent of my sins and just wash my hands of responsibility for anyone else. That's not Zion. 
We may be saved individually, as President Nelson has taught before, but we are not exalted individually. That is a family affair. It's not enough to be a Zion person, single, solitary. In some ways, that would be easy. Go, go find a, a monastery built for one somewhere and go live the gospel as perfectly as you can. There's not the, the oh, what does Elder Maxwell call it? The, the clinical material. We don't have other people to practice on and they practice on us and all that friction, rubbing off rough edges and so on. It's easy to be of one heart and one mind when there's only one heart and one mind to worry about. But when we are a collective, when we are a gathering of saints that feels responsible for the saintliness of one another, and careful here, not going down some path where we are, we're judging and we're judgmental and we're critical of one another and we're trying to create some sort of shame culture to force everyone into conformity and obedience. No, that's not Zion either. For us to get to the point where that we dwell in righteousness, hmm, there's, there's the collective sense, and no poor among us, no poor of spirit, no, no one suffering from a poverty of friends or of relationships that are redemptive. You see what the Lord is after here? You're not, you're not ready to move to Missouri. We've got some, some growing up to do. We need to undergo a spiritual change before we pursue a physical move. And saints, you are not justified because you're not taking care of one another, temporally or spiritually. The Lord, in, in a way, is asking us to strike this difficult balance that He has achieved to perfection. And that's between justice and mercy. To be merciful enough that everyone knows that they are welcome. Come as you are. But to be just enough to, to, so that everyone knows that we're here to try to help us all improve. It's one thing to say, come as you are. It's another thing to say, oh, and leave as you were. No, we have to be able to say the first, but we shouldn't be saying the second. We want people to leave differently. If the Lord is able to make us holy, and if we truly believe that, then when we accept and welcome people in, do we humbly and patiently and faithfully and mercifully work with them, as, their work, as the Lord is working with us, to become better people? Imagine what will happen when we get to the point where we are justified because such wicked things are not among us. And it's not because we formed some kind of closed community and said, you're not welcome here. It's because we took people from wherever they happened to be, and we helped them connect with Christ to the point of sanctification. And as we all endure this mighty change of heart, justification, oh, that's easy. We've already passed that along the way. Justified collectively for the way we treat each other. Now, like I said, so much of this up to this point is, has been justice, with that one little peak of mercy about if you'll repent. Well, 20, we see more of that mercy. Nevertheless, with that we see a pendulum swing. Nevertheless, he that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome, and shall receive an inheritance upon the earth when the day of transfiguration shall come. Now, that verse does not describe Ezra Booth. He didn't endure in faith. He didn't do God's will. But for those other saints that are being called to repent and called to help others repent among them, those ones will overcome. Will overcome a wicked world. Will overcome a, a natural man perspective on things. And they will see, ultimately with the eye of flesh, 
what they have seen all along through the eye of faith, a transfigured earth. You see, it was Peter, James, and John who saw Jesus for who he really was. Remember Matthew 16 when Jesus asked the apostles, Whom do you, who do men say that I am? Oh, well, this, that, and the other, they're all wrong. And then, well, how about you? Whom do you say that I am? And Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We see that, not through the natural eyes and for the present time, but we see it through the eye of faith. And then one chapter later, Matthew 17, the Lord takes Peter, James, and John up to a mount of transfiguration, trans, change, across, figure, how, how we're shaped. And so to transfigure Christ, to transfigure the earth, to change its very nature, because you've already seen that change through the eye of faith. I love that scene for, for Peter, James, and John's sake. To see Jesus transfigured before them, it's like, whoa, this is who we've been hanging out with the last few years? I mean, I, I believed, but now I know to such a greater degree. I've seen him in what he will be. Almost this, this preview of coming attractions as far as resurrection and glory are concerned. This is Gandalf the Grey becoming Gandalf the White, okay? This is, this is the mortal Jesus, carpenter from Nazareth, being transfigured before their eyes into the Lord of glory. This is confirming to those men what they had been seeing through the eye of faith all along. Well, here, someday you will receive an inheritance upon the earth, and the earth itself will be transfigured but when you went to Missouri, did you see it with that eye to th of things to come? Did you get a preview of the transfiguration while you were there? Because that's on you and on your faith. Whom do men say that I am? Well, what do people think of Western Missouri in 1831? Nothing. But whom do you say that I am? What do you say of Zion? Sydney, write it down. Missionary companionships go back with these glowing reports of what it will someday become when things are transfigured. He continues that, down that path in verse 21. When the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount, of which account the fullness ye have not yet received. Oh, there's preview of coming attractions. It makes my mouth water. I, I, I would love to have a full account of what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. At the end of it, Peter himself says, Lord, and this is the understatement of, of the New Testament, it is good for us to be here. Oh, you think so? I'm glad I came today. Well, of course you did. You got to see the big picture. You caught a glimpse with the eye of flesh, what you've been seeing with the eye of faith all along. You saw the Lord of glory transfigured before you. You saw heavenly messengers. You got to see, according to this account, a transfigured view of the earth itself. You ever seen that on like real estate shows or things or just architectural plans? This is what this plot looks like now. And then with some, some CGI, they'll, they'll show, and this is what it will look like once the construction is finished. And it's like, whoa, that's going to be incredible. Well, to see the whole earth that way when it receives its paradisiacal glory, Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of that. And that's the kind of experience that the Lord is hoping for the saints as they go and behold Zion. Now, verse 22, the Lord backs up a bit and says this, 
Now verily I say unto you, that as I said that I would make known my will unto you, behold, I will make it known unto you, not by the way of commandment, for there are many who observe not to keep my commandments. I love that. It's like the Lord is saying, you know, the word commandment is kind of a trigger for some of you. Uh, it, makes, it makes you feel like I'm in, in, infringing upon your agency. And nobody honors agency better than me. Uh, but I do give commands so that you know how to use your agency wisely. And then justice and mercy will follow. But if the word command comes off a little too strong for you, fine. Let me back up a bit and simply say, it is my will. Is that better? I mean, a commandment is the statement of my will. But if I take away the word and just say, oh, it's my will, I'd really love for you to do such and such, hopefully by softening it enough for you, you start to soften your heart and, and submit your will and keep my command. Oh, sorry, I was going to use the C word again. Uh, and honor my will. I've mentioned this before, that if you, if you run through the Doctrine and Covenants at, at kind of lightning speed, you do see the Lord's language shift somewhat from commandments, and thus saith the Lord, to statements like, it is expedient in me, or here, the Lord willeth, it is my will that ye such and such. Uh, we'll soften it up a little, a little bit more, and we go from, it is expedient in me, to it is wisdom in me. We'll see a phrase like that in today's chapter. Do according to wisdom. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm making you do it, but it's a really smart thing. And I am omniscient, just saying. And then we get to a point where he'll even say, it's up to you. It mattereth not. You cannot go amiss. We saw that last week. So you see this process that the Lord is working the saints through? Shifting the center of gravity from inspiration, that's what you got to do, to agency? This would be, I mean, if you want to be smart, this is a good idea. But I'll leave it totally up to you. You kind of get that sense there in that, that one verse. People freak out over commandments. There are many who observe not to keep my commandments. So instead, let me simply make known my will. And then, I'll, again, I'll teach correct principles, and then you govern yourself. Verse 23, But unto him that keepeth my commandments, that's, again, at the end of the day, that's what they are, I will give the mysteries of my kingdom, and the same shall be in him a well of living water springing up unto everlasting life. Beautiful language. We all get to be the woman at the well in this instance. But it's partly about keeping the commandments and coupling that with knowing and learning the mysteries of God's kingdom. You see, if faith precedes the miracle, obedience precedes the miracle too. If we receive no witness until after the trial of our faith, well, then we receive no mysteries until after we've kept the commandments also. In fact, that verse ties in so beautifully with what we saw two weeks ago in section 59 about being crowned with commandments, not a few. Because what else does he say in the same breath? We're crowned with blessings and commandments, not a few, and revelations in their time. You see how those two come together? Obedience and revelation, commandments and mysteries. You can be trusted with them. You're following the direction God has given you. Of course, he knows you'll now be open to receive more. To go from line upon line and precept upon precept, what happens during that upon stage between the lines and between the precepts? Obedience. I kept the commandment I was crowned with, and another revelation is now on the way. Mysteries of the kingdom. That's how this well springs up 
You see, a well is not just a pond or a puddle that you, you, you draw from and it dissipates. It's, it's the water table. It, it's, it's continually replenishing itself. Wells aren't meant to run dry. And obedience and revelation, with more obedience and more revelation, keep the commandments, receive the mysteries of God. No wonder the water keeps on bubbling up, springing up unto everlasting life. And the well of living water is within you. In him, it says there. Wells are not meant to be portable, and neither are trees, for that matter. Uh, they're sunk in the soil, right? The root, rooted in the ground. And yet the way the Lord describes things, by way of both living water wells and trees of life, both of those are portable. The well will be inside you. Alma 32, the tree of life will be growing within you. No matter where you go, you have God with you. You're always with him. Then verse 24, Now behold, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning his saints, that they should assemble themselves together unto the land of Zion. That is my ultimate goal. That's where I want you. But notice this end, the ending of the verse. Not in haste, lest there should be confusion, which bringeth pestilence. Last week we talked over and over about speedily, but not in haste. And it has to be done in the Lord's order and according to the Lord's timetable. Yes, my ultimate goal hasn't changed. I want you there, gathering to Zion. But it can't be in haste, because that will be just confusion. Please, give poor Bishop Partridge a break. Quit flooding in and, and outpacing the, the consecration of the saints that are going to be able to purchase lands. Verse 25, Behold the land of Zion, I the Lord hold it in mine own hands. I got it, it's mine. Verse 26, Nevertheless, I, the Lord, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. So even the Lord is striking this delicate balance. I'm the Lord over all the earth. It is my footstool, he calls it. And yet, in the meantime, it seems to be under Caesar's control. And that gives a whole lot of space for human agency, Satan's influence, the natural man with their natural views. I mean, you name it. This is what we're up against. Ultimately, it all belongs to me. But in the meantime, even I render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Remember that phrase when Jesus was about to cast out legion in the New Testament? And they, these evil spirits say, whoa, 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 have you come to torment us before the time? That's such an interesting phrase, before the time. We know that we're going to lose the game. We know we eventually get kicked off the field. But, but not yet. Don't, don't we get some playtime in, in, in advance of that? Don't... don't isn't, aren't we under Caesar's time clock? And won't you allow us to, to do things the world's way for a while? Well, the Lord does, because that worldly way, as it, as it pushes and stretches us, it allows us to become saints against those odds. It's like the gravity that allows weightlifting to actually do something for us. Caesar is part of that opposition in all things. Caesar is part of that spiritual gravity. I mean, I imagine it'll be easy enough to become a Zion people when, when it's just Zion time. Like it describes in the millennium, children growing up without sin unto salvation. Yeah, sounds like a good time to be a, a, a child. And, for that matter, a good time to be a parent. But that's not the time in which we live. We are living during Caesar time. And even though God holds Zion in his own hands, we have to learn to follow the Lord's commandments, his will, 
gently suggested to us here. And we need to do it in spite of a wicked world that is pulling in all kinds of different directions. Now, specifically for the saints, what does that mean? Look at verse 27. Wherefore I, the Lord, will, again, softer than commandment, that you should purchase the lands, that you may have advantage of the world, that you may have claim on the world, that they may not be stirred up unto anger. Yes, the whole earth is the Lord's. He holds it in his own hands. It's his footstool. But if there are people or governments that claim ownership of the land in the meantime, I mean, during the millennium, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, right? We sing that with Handel's Messiah. But in the meantime, we're not there yet. We're not living in the millennial reign. And so rather than just going and saying, oh, all the earth belongs to the Lord, and he's carved out this little space in Independence, Missouri, as the gathering spot, the center place for his saints. So you're free to leave, or you're free to join us. You just need to make covenants with Christ, and then you're welcome to stay. No. To have the advantage of the world, then you need to be playing by the world's rules in this area. And that means legal title and deed, and monetary purchase, don't just march in and say, this belongs to us because God said so. Some saints were doing that. And it was causing major problems. It was causing confusion and pestilence. They were being neither good saints nor good citizens. Neither good disciples nor good neighbors. And that was causing major problems with the locals that, that considered the land their own. Well, in this, don't come marching, you know, coming in with guns blazing claiming to be God's people here to acquire and, and stake a claim to God's land. No, do it Caesar's way in this. Do it legally and lawfully. Do it patiently and with perseverance. Pay for it. Purchase the land. Living the gospel will give you a heavenly advantage. But doing it through these kinds of legal channels will give you an earthly advantage as well. Verse 28, for Satan putteth it into their hearts to anger against you and to the shedding of blood. And we'll see a lot of that through the church's history in Missouri in the 1830s. Verse 29, wherefore the land of Zion shall not be obtained but by purchase or by blood. Otherwise there is none inheritance for you. Now before you jump to conclusions and go, oh, see, we got both options. We can either take it by, uh, by purchase or we can take it by blood. No, the Lord is not giving us permission for both of those. He's simply saying, those are the two ways it's going to happen. And then he clarifies which one he wants. Verse 30, if by purchase, even though that's Caesar's way, it's my way now too. I'm rendering to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. If by purchase, behold, you are blessed. Verse 31, and if by blood, as you are forbidden to shed blood, Lo, your enemies are upon you, and ye shall be scourged from city to city, and from synagogue to synagogue, and but few shall stand to receive an inheritance. So it's not just that you shouldn't do this. It's that if you want it to work, then you can't. It's not just unrighteous. It's downright ineffective. Obtaining it by blood, that's not going to happen. Your enemies will be upon you. You'll be scourged from city to city. And then interesting phrase, from synagogue to synagogue. It's almost like, well, wait, we... We don't build synagogues. We build churches. Oh, I know. I know. I know. But your behavior is reminding me of the behavior of ancient Israel. And if you just claim to be God's people without living like it, 
And I'm not trying to pass a blanket judgment over, over the ancient house of Israel. I'm simply calling attention to a history of anti-Semitism, which tragically has driven the house of Israel from city to city and from synagogue to synagogue. Makes you wonder if the conquest of Canaan could have been different, I don't know, without all the shedding of blood. And instead of a violent insurrection against Rome, shortly after the death of Jesus Christ, what could have happened if there had been a, a full-hearted acceptance of Jesus Christ as the Messiah that he came to be, not the Messiah that they had expected, one who had come to free them from sin rather than one that had come to fight and free them from Rome? May we learn from past mistakes and not turn to the sword to, to claim Zion. The only sword that will claim Zion will be the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. We have to live it. Verse 32, the Lord backs up, gives us a little bit bigger picture here. I, the Lord, am angry with the wicked. Blanket statement there. I am holding my spirit from the inhabitants of the earth. Now there's the ultimate punishment. And remember, we are more often punished by our sins than for them. If we're wicked, then we have re repelled the Holy Ghost. We have rejected the spirit. We've cut ourselves off. That's so what's happening there in verse 32. As a result, verse 33, I have sworn in my wrath and decreed wars upon the face of the earth, and the wicked shall slay the wicked, and fear shall come upon every man. We saw that with the destruction of the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon, where it becomes Jaredites fighting Jaredites. We saw that with the destruction of the Nephite nation at the end, where the Lamanites destroy the Nephites, but the Nephites at that point were totally wicked as well. So it's by the wicked that the wicked are punished. In fact, that's the exact phrase that Mormon uses when he describes his day. God has withdrawn his spirit. Remember, Mormon used those words at the end of the Book of Mormon when he worried that the spirit has ceased striving with man. Strive, that's the word for strife, to fight. God's going to stop fighting us because, because we won't stop fighting him. One of us has to lay down uh, the, the arms first. One of us has to surrender. And if we don't submit our will to God, then sadly, he surrenders to our will. He lets us have our way, since he won't force his will upon us. And as a result, we have offended God. He has withdrawn his spirit. The spirit doesn't stop striving with us. And all that's left is wicked fighting wicked and destroying one another and fear spreading upon all people. Verse 34 even gives us this warning and the saints also shall hardly escape. That's a scary phrase. The saints will hardly escape. They'll barely make it. It will take a lot of effort and determination on their part. It will be hard for them to escape the kinds of judgments that are being passed upon a world of wickedness. This is like the plagues of Egypt, where early on in those plagues, they, they, there was a separation between righteous and wicked, between Egyptian and Israelite. And it was only the Egyptians that bore the brunt of those plagues. But as things got worse, and the wicked still weren't repenting, eventually the plagues began to affect the Israelites as well. Until ultimately, there was a complete division and the, the Passover and the death of the firstborn, which finally allowed the slaves, the, the Israelites, to go completely free. We'll see more about that complete separation later in this revelation. But here, during these, these days of darkness and gloom, even the righteous will be affected somewhat.
reminds me of the talk that President Hinckley gave a month after 9-11. This is the October 2001 General Conference. A masterpiece of a message with truly all the eyes and ears of the, of the faithful upon him. It was a different world that we were emerging into. And President Hinckley said, Now, brothers and sisters, we must do our duty, whatever that duty might be. Peace may be denied for a season. Some of our liberties may be curtailed. We may be inconvenienced. We may even be called on to suffer in one way or another. And he was talking to the saints there. In fact, earlier in that talk, he even said, some may die in the conflict that lies ahead. But then he promised, but God, our eternal father, will watch over this nation and all of the civilized world who look to him. You get the same sense of reassurance at the end of verse 34. Yes, the saints also shall hardly escape. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, am with them and will come down in heaven from the presence of my Father and consume the wicked with unquenchable fire. Behold, this is not yet, but by and by. Welcome to the last days, my friends. This is what we're dealing with and what we will have to live through. Joseph Smith himself once taught, it is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments while the wicked suffer. Remember, as harvest time approaches, there are, there are tares sown amidst the wheat, and we're all growing up together. Maybe that's another reason why he's warning us that there are, we're not justified because wickedness is among us. We have to change ourselves, but also seek to change in kind and gentle and agency-honoring ways those that are around us. We need to cry repentance. We need to prepare the world. But we also need to prepare ourselves to, to struggle with and perhaps even suffer alongside some of the wicked that are being punished for their sins. Even the saints will hardly escape. But amidst all of that, remember the promise. I'm with them. Now, we're not there yet. But by and by, where this time is approaching, wherefore, verse 36, seeing that I, the Lord, have decreed all these things upon the face of the earth, I will that my saints should be assembled upon the land of Zion. That's why I'm trying to get you there. This, the, the first gathering to Ohio, to give you the law of consecration and to be endowed with power from on high, this ultimate gathering place in Zion, to live the law of consecration, one heart, one mind, and to be endowed with power from on high there also, to, have, to dwell in righteousness, not to have any poor among you. Why do you think I'm doing this? But don't short-circuit the system. Don't jump the gun. Wait until you are ready and called to come. That's the sense in 37. And that every man should take righteousness in his hands and faithfulness upon his loins, and lift a warning voice unto the inhabitants of the earth, and declare both by word and by flight that desolation shall come upon the wicked. What a verse. In, because of all this that, that the Lord is warning and forewarning us about, the signs of the times that are coming, again, not, not sign seekers seek, oh, the signs are coming, but will they be found unto salvation? Or will your sign be destruction upon Babylon? Seeing all of these things, take righteousness in your hands. Hold on to them, white knuckle. Hand or hand the rod along. Take righteousness there. It's, it's there. The power is in you. Your agents unto yourselves. Take righteousness. Faithfulness. Put it upon your loins. The sight of all things creation. What kind of a people are you trying to engender 
Are you raising righteous seed? Are you putting faithfulness upon your loins? Remember the armor of God. Gird up your loins with truth. Here with faithfulness. Lift the warning voice so that there isn't wickedness among you. Wake up the world for the conflict of justice. Okay? And declare both by word, that's the, the, the vocal missionary message, and by flight. Now that's an interesting one. Is that a way to bear witness of things as well? I don't know if you've ever had to get up out of a, a movie theater because the movie was inappropriate. You didn't say a word, but your standing and walking out sent a message. Now, we're not doing it to be seen of men. We don't stand up and kind of uh, condemn everyone that's still seated. But I've been in, in theaters where I got up and left, and, and I've, gone, I've been in movies where I saw other people get up and leave. And yes, it left an impression. It sent a message. To me, it's an amazing thing to watch people bear witness and declare repentance by flight. Flee Babylon is a phrase we'll see later on in the Doctrine and Covenants. And as we simply choose to live righteously, to avoid the evils that are all around us, we are sending a silent invitation for others to follow. I mean, even just, I mean, curiosity alone. Why are you guys leaving? Where are you going? We're going to Zion. And you're welcome to join us. And please take that spiritually and symbolically before you take it literally. Your flight from evil things and from wicked ways. Not just booking it down to Missouri. Again, that's going to cause problems and confusion and, and uh, pestilence. Uh, Bishop Partridge doesn't want things to be that way. So what are the saints there supposed to do in the meantime? Verse 38, Wherefore let my disciples in Kirtland arrange their temporal concerns who dwell upon this farm. Now this isn't the Lehman Copley farm. We saw that earlier. Uh, this is the Isaac Morley farm. Isaac Morley is what Lehman Copley was supposed to be. Uh, Isaac Morley consecrated his farm in Ohio so that saints could dwell and have a land of inheritance. And in fact, he goes down to Missouri to, to begin preparing others. He, he pulled it off successfully. He proved that he was a Zion person and was then called to go and help build a Zion place. Well, those saints that are still back there living upon that farm, what are they supposed to do? Arrange your temporal concerns. In fact, President Hinckley emphasized that considerably in that post 9-11 talk as well. To get out of debt, to save money, to build up food storage, to pay tithing and fast offerings, to borrow the language of section 63, to arrange your temporal concerns. Then in verse 39, let my servant Titus Billings, who has the care thereof, He'd been made the agent of this land when uh, Isaac Morley was called to leave. Let Brother Billings dispose of the land that he may be prepared in the coming spring to take his journey up unto the land of Zion with those that dwell upon the face thereof, excepting those whom I shall reserve unto myself that shall not go until I shall command them. So there in verse 39, you see some are called to go, some are called to stay. And, and you've got to trust my will on this. There's redemption taking place in, in both situations. And for you, Brother Billings, I, I love the counsel, dispose of the land so that you're prepared to go. And this is the temporal side of things still. And there's something about disposing of land. I get this sense of, 
of freeing himself from temporal cares so that he's ready to go in a heartbeat as soon as he's called. I've heard it said that everything you own ends up owning you. And are we tied down by these temporal things, these cares of the world? Or will we be prepared to take our journey up to the land of Zion? I actually was curious about that word up, and so I checked the elevation. And yes, the elevation of independence is higher than the elevation of Kirtland, Ohio. But that's just literally. Figuratively, symbolically speaking, it is a climb. All nations shall flow unto the mountain of the Lord. We talked about that last week from Isaiah. Will they be prepared to go up to the land? Or will they be dragged down by their temporal affairs? Either what they have and are not willing to sacrifice, dispose of, as was said, or because of what they lack and still coveting the things of the world. Can we just say goodbye to it all as we journey to Zion? Verse 40, let all the monies which can be spared, it mattereth not unto me whether it be little or much, be sent up unto the land of Zion unto them whom I have appointed to receive. This is part of that process of saints in Ohio and elsewhere consecrating funds so that saints and Bishop Partridge particularly in Missouri can have funds to purchase land, to do it Caesar's way, to have that advantage in this world. But it is interesting that the Lord would say, eh, whether it's a lot or a little doesn't really matter to me. After all, the land of Zion is in my hands, he said. And yeah, money will help do that, but I can provide for my saints. I can take care of those kinds of things. But what I can't take care of is your will. I honor your agency. But I just, so I need you to get into the habit of being generous, of being selfless, of being consecrating saints. I don't care how much it ends up being. It mattereth not whether it's little or much. I just want you to get into the habit of being selfless. That's Zion. And if you can be selfless with a little, then hopefully you can continue being selfless with a lot. It's actually really interesting to me when we study the story of the widow's might, because the focus is always on she gave so little, but it was all that she had. And so that was that outweighed. It was more than the riches of, of those that had so much to give. But there's actually a word that, that blows me away in the Mark account of that story. It sets up the scene like this. And Jesus sat over against the treasury. So it was kind of across the way from where all this money was coming in. He sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And then he talks about the widow putting in her mites. But what amazes me is that the Lord wasn't there to watch how much. He was there to see how. Such a difference there. I guess in some ways the woman could have put in her might and then and said, hey, come, all eyes on me. Uh, by, by way of percentage, I totally outperformed, outgave uh, the, these, these wealthy scribes and Pharisees. But no, she did it humbly. She wasn't trying to become the star in some scripture story here. She, she humbly gave all that she could. But it was the how more than the how much that caught the Savior's attention. I get the same sense here from verse 40. I don't care how much. I just care how you give. So consecrate. And then in verse 41, Behold, I the Lord will give unto my servant Joseph Smith Jr. power. Power that he shall be enabled to discern by the Spirit those who shall go up unto the land of Zion and those of my disciples who shall tarry. 
So trust the prophet on this. Whether you're called to go or whether you're called to stay. Whether you're called to, to give or called to receive. I, I'm so amazed. Again, my son is waiting on his mission call. And it's been such a blessing for me to watch his attitude change. From this, this hope and this concern of, of where I'm going to go. To simply a gratitude and humble acceptance of the fact that he gets to at all. And where will he serve? And what kind of a mission will it be? And what it boils down to, honestly, and we were, he and I were talking about this the other day, do I trust God? And do I trust his servants? To simply kind of hand over the keys and say, you can take me wherever you want to go. My life is in your hands. Earlier we saw that the Lord holds Zion in his hands. Well, he holds the would-be inhabitants of Zion in his hands as well. And we, are we content to stay there? Are we willing to submit our will to him and to his servants, trusting that his servant, Joseph Smith Jr., or in this case, his servant, Russell M. Nelson, or his servant, any of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, will they be enabled to discern by the Spirit where I should go and what I should do? Do we trust our mission president in terms of what area to serve in and what companion to have? Do we trust our stake president and our bishop of what calling to serve in and with whom and for how long? And for all of those making these appointments, are they trusting in God's promise that he will enable them to discern by the Spirit? I would love to, to someday watch a counter history. As a historian, those are always fascinating for, for me to read of if this had changed, instead, if, this, if, the thing, if history had gone this way instead of that, what might have changed as a result? Well, to, to see a counter-history of Zion, if they had followed the, the just counsel, no, no commandments today, just my will, uh, of section 63 and the other revelations that we've studied thus far, if they simply would have held back, be ready to go at a moment's notice, little season, but also to stay and act on the land as for years. Brother Joseph, we trust you, we trust the Lord that is speaking to you, and will go or stay as you reveal to us. The Lord then has a little message for Newell K. Whitney in verse 42. Remember, Newell K. Whitney is the one that has a store. It's got his name in big print over it. Okay? This is the Newell K. Whitney store there in Kirtland, Ohio. He's been super generous already. Soon enough, we'll see it in like a week or two, he will be called as a second bishop of the church. We got Bishop Partridge down in, in Zion, and now we have, and soon we will have Bishop Whitney there in Kirtland. Both men, successful businessmen. Both men have proven themselves trustworthy in temporal affairs. So both men given those responsibilities. But I absolutely love the Lord's language in verse 42. It makes me chuckle every time I read it. Let my servant Newell K. Whitney retain his store. Or in other words, the store. Yet for a little season. Now that's an easy one to skip over. But you see what the Lord just did in correcting himself? He says, you know, Newell, uh, Bishop was soon to be Bishop Whitney. Uh, I, I see that you have a story. I, like I said, I can't miss it. Even from up here, I can see your name in big print over the top. But when he first refers to it as his store, and then he backs up and corrects himself. Oh, I mean, sorry. <laughs> I always get that wrong. Uh, it's not his store. It's the store. And I'm going to let him retain it, but just for a little season. Now, you see what the Lord is doing preparing Newell Whitney for, for some advanced courses in consecration? 
What's the difference between his store and the store? The possessive pronoun. And it's the possessiveness that the Lord is trying to wean us away from. It's going to take a while. Uh, you can retain it for a little while. Give it a little more time and it will be full consecration. But even now, this gentle uh, grammatical correction, I just love. If we were willing to let the Lord say similar things to us. Oh, thank you for your tithing. I mean, the tithing. Thank you, thank you for offering your time. I mean, the time. Thank you, Elder Scorn President, for allowing us to use your truck. I mean, the truck. <laughs> what, the, what the Lord is doing here is, is classic. Reminds me of what he said earlier about the saints leaving New, uh, New York and Pennsylvania to come to Ohio. Remember when he said, oh, you can do whatever you want with the land. You can, you can sell it. You can rent it. You can just leave it. Whatever. And it's like, what, leave the land? Are you kidding me? I stand to lose, uh, I guess, temporally speaking, but oh, what you stand to gain. The Lord definitely has a different perspective on, on temporal things than we do. And we're the ones that need to change to become more like Him. Now in the meantime, Brother Whitney, verse 43, Nevertheless, let him impart all the money which he can impart to be sent up unto the land of Zion. Yes, back in 40, it was, it doesn't matter if it's little or much. Well, Noel K. Whitney is going, to have a, is going to be closer to the much side. And the Lord is asking for all that he can spare. But then says in 44, Behold, these things are in his own hands, so let him do according to wisdom. This is God honoring agency. He's given him inspiration in 43, but then honored the agency in 44. Let him do according to wisdom. Remember, thou shalt becomes its expedient, becomes its wisdom, becomes it's totally up to you. The power is in you. You're an agent unto yourself. That's what I'm after here. Well, Newell K. Whitney is going to be an excellent agent unto himself. He can be trusted with his will. Verse 45, Verily I say, let him, Newell K. Whitney, be ordained as an agent unto the disciples that shall tarry, and let him be ordained unto this power. So earlier we saw Sidney Gilbert as an agent that's going to be helping Bishop Partridge in Missouri. We saw Titus Billings as an agent for the uh, Morley Farm. Now we have uh, Newell K. Whitney as an agent for the people that are going to be staying behind in Kirtland. And like I said, soon enough, he'll be a full-fledged bishop. That's part of being ordained unto this power. Then verse 46, And now speedily visit the churches all the different branches of the Church of Jesus Christ that, that exist in the area, expounding these things unto them with my servant Oliver Cowdery. Behold, this is my will, obtaining monies even as I have directed. Why do you think Sidney Rigdon was tasked with writing the description of the land of Zion? As an epistle, something to be sent forth, as a subscription, something that people can buy into to be able to contribute their monies? Well, Oliver Cowdery here is being called on kind of this financial aid mission. This is like the deacons and teachers being sent around the ward to go collect fast offerings. Well, this is going to be go collect offerings for Zion so we can purchase the land according and appease Caesar so that then we'll be ready to, when called upon, gradually and, and systematically and orderly move into the land of Zion to inherit it. Verse 47, he that is faithful and endureth shall overcome the world. We saw a similar promise earlier. And then 48, he that sendeth up treasures unto the land of Zion shall receive an inheritance in this world, there's the here, and his work shall follow him and also a reward in the world to come. So there's the hereafter. 
The Lord wants to bless us on both sides of that, both the temporal and the spiritual, both the here and the hereafter. We just need to have faith and endure to overcome the kinds of worldly worries that would keep us from that kind of consecration. Verse 49, yea, and blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Remember we had the funeral of Polly Knight there in Zion. Remember even the saints shall hardly escape. Remember this is what we're up against. And some won't live to have that inheritance in this world. But the inheritance in the world to come is always guaranteed for the faithful. So blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. From henceforth, things will get worse before they get better. When the Lord shall come and old things shall pass away and all things become new, they shall rise from the dead and shall not die after and shall receive an inheritance before the Lord in the holy city. You see, even the earthly new Jerusalem pales in comparison to the heavenly one. And whether you obtain an inheritance here on earth or there in heaven, great shall be your reward. You see the Lord putting this in, in big picture perspective. Don't just look with a natural eye. Don't just see for the present time. Back up and see the big picture. See it in context of the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the Lord shall come and old things pass away and become new. See this in context of the millennium. See it in context of the celestial kingdom. In verse 50, he that liveth when the Lord shall come and hath kept the faith, that's the key, blessed is he. Nevertheless, it is appointed to him to die at the age of man. He's sneaking a little doctrine here about death during the millennium. He goes on in 51, wherefore children shall grow up until they become old, old men shall die, but they shall not sleep in the dust, but they shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Wherefore, for this cause, preach the apostles unto the world the resurrection of the dead. So like I said, sneaking in a little doctrine here. Uh, those that are here for the second coming of Jesus Christ, they'll continue to live. They'll get old. They'll have children. All will seem normal, but when they die, they will not slumber in the dust. They'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Kind of like that Mount of Transfiguration experience where in the twinkling of an eye, they see Jesus go from, from the, the mere mortal that they've been following around for the last few years to the kind of Lord of glory that he would someday become. The earth itself will undergo a similar transfiguration. The inhabitants thereof during the millennium will be changed. Yes, there will be life and old age and, and birth and death, but just not staying in the grave. Just changed. Twinkling of an eye. In the Spanish translation, they always call it un abrir y cerrar de los ojos, which is the way to say a blink. So Spanish speakers will get blinked. English speakers will get twinkled. Uh, I'd love to know what the other languages are out there and what happens to you. But there will be some kind of change that takes place as we go from mortal to immortal, thanks to the immortality promised through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles had preached to the world. Verse 53, these things are the things that ye must look for. And speaking after the manner of the Lord, they are now nigh at hand, and in a time to come, even in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. I love how he puts it in that verse. These things are the things that ye must look for. Forget the natural eye. Forget the present time. Back up, see big picture, look with the eternal perspective. See through the eye of faith. Why would you look for signs when you can see realities transfigured before you? 
Hold out hope for resurrection and redemption. Become Zion and someday build it. New Jerusalem and heaven itself coming to the earth. It's amazing what you get to be a part of. And it's all nigh at hand. Now, yes, I'm speaking after the manner of the Lord. And from his distance, time passes pretty quickly. Far more quickly than it feels for us here below. But try to look at it from his perspective. You see that little print on the bottom of the, of the, rear, the, the side windows in a car. Things in mirror appear, or maybe are closer than they appear. Well, on the, the spiritual vehicle, it often says the reverse. Things in the mirror may be much further off than they look like. Be patient. Have faith. They will come. But see it closely and act accordingly with diligence, with zeal, but yes, with patience as well. Verse 54, unto that hour, there will be foolish virgins among the wise. There's the, there is wickedness among you that he chastened them about earlier. And at that hour, the second coming, cometh an entire separation of the righteous and the wicked. And in that day will I send mine angels to pluck out the wicked and cast them into unquenchable fire. I told you we'd see this entire separation later on in this revelation. Well, there it is. Right now, the wheat and the tares are growing up together. Really hard to tell the two apart. And in as far as a literal field is concerned, a tear stays a tear. And wheat stays wheat. But in the spiritual version of this parable of the wheat and the tares, why let them grow up together? Because either one can change. It remains a test for the wheat to stay weedy. And it remains a promise to the tares that they are welcome to change as wheat cries repentance to every tare around it or gets up and starts walking out of the field to go to the garner itself. Remember, bear witness by word and by flight. Well, as we're trying, a curious tare might say, whoa, 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 wheat, where are you going? I'm going up to the mountain of the Lord. I'm going up to Zion. I'm going up to the garner where I will be safe. And you're welcome to join me. You just got to do some changing along the way. And that's okay. I've been doing a lot of changing to get to this point too. Justice, mercy, it's all there. But an entire separation will someday come. Wheat and tares, sheep and goats, right hand and left. On which side of the Lord will we be on? Verse 55, the Lord then turns to Sidney Rigdon. Behold, verily I say unto you, I the Lord am not pleased with my servant Sidney Rigdon. He exalted himself in his heart, there's pride, and received not counsel, there's stubbornness, but grieved the spirit. Now the Lord is not yet withholding the spirit from the inhabitants of the earth, like we saw earlier. He's not holding it back from Sidney Rigdon. But Sidney Rigdon uh, doesn't feel like he needs it. And if you've been a lifelong minister of the gospel and you really know your stuff and, and eloquence and language is your natural gift, then it's really easy to exalt yourself and to receive not counsel. But those things do grieve the spirit. And if there were ever a source of eloquence, it's the word of God. So rely upon that word. And Sydney, remember we talked about this earlier. You were supposed to write this glowing description of Zion as seen through the eye of faith. Well, that can only be given you by the Spirit. He was told that specifically. But here, because he grieved that Spirit, his description... Remember section 50, it has to go Spirit to Spirit. You have to give 
in the Lord's way, if it's some other way, it's not of God. And you have to receive in the Lord's way. If it's some other way, then it is not of God. Well, Sidney wrote in some other way, which means it would probably be received in some other way. And now he's called to repentance in 55 and then given another chance in 56. Wherefore, his writing is not acceptable unto the Lord. So I'm not going to take your first draft. I've had lots of professors that have said the same to me, sadly. But they've given me a chance to rewrite. The Lord does the same. His writing is not acceptable unto the Lord, and he shall make another. There's justice and mercy side by side. And if the Lord receive it not, so if you don't do better even with this second chance, behold, he standeth no longer in the office to which I have appointed him. We've seen that repeatedly in the Doctrine and Covenants too. Everyone is replaceable, including Joseph himself. So, Sidney, if you can't write according to the Spirit, I'll have someone else do it. Oliver Cowdery's good with words. Why do you think I'm sending him off with this writing you're supposed to give? W.W. Phelps is good with words. We could have him do it. But, Sidney, this is a chance for you to, to live into this mission that I've given you. And he does. He does a better job the second time. He writes according to the Spirit. And that's the one that, that goes forth. Verse 57, again, verily I say unto you, those who desire in their hearts, in meekness, to warn sinners to repentance, let them be ordained unto this power. Remember section 4, if you have desires to serve, you're called to the work. Well, there's desire in their hearts, but also what is it that qualifies them for the work? Christ-like attributes. And here, what qualifies them? More than just their desire, it's their meekness. The complete opposite of how Sidney was just described two verses ago. About exalting yourself. About not receiving counsel. Well, can you be meek enough to warn sinners? That's the Lord's way. Give it that way, they'll receive it that way. Verse 58 again puts it all in perspective. For this is a day of warning, and not a day of many words. For I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in the last days. God is taking this seriously. Will we? This is a day that it's coming quickly in the Lord's perspective. We don't have all the time in the world. It's not a day for many words. It's a day of warning. Section 1, it is a voice of warning that shall be to all people. So warn them by words. If there's no time for that, warn them by flight. Get out of the wicked world. Repent of your sins and come unto Zion. Verse 59, behold, I am from above and my power lieth beneath. I am over all, and in all, and through all, and search all things. And the day cometh that all things shall be subject unto me. We started this revelation with the Lord introducing himself to his hearers. Now he is ending this revelation by introducing himself yet again. I am from above. My powers lie beneath. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get that sense from the Lord's Prayer. I'm over all, in all, through all. I search all things. I'm here. I'm trying to, to wean you off the world. I'm trying to help you grow up in me. I'm trying to help Joseph discern who should go and who should stay. I'm trying to help Bishop Partridge and soon-to-be Bishop Whitney and, and Oliver Cowdery and Sidney Rigdon and all these other, Titus Billings, I mean, all these saints. I'm trying to help you become what you need to become. Someday, he says at the end of that verse, all things shall be subject unto me. But will you submit yourself to my will early? Will you do it in the meantime? Elder Maxwell once said, if you sense that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, 
why not do so now? For in the coming of that collective confession, it will mean much less to kneel down when it is no longer possible to stand up. Are we getting ready for that? The day cometh that all things shall be subject unto me. Can we hasten that day? Can we make that statement true of us right now? Verse 60, Behold, I am Alpha and Omega, even Jesus Christ. Wherefore, let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. For behold, verily I say, that many there be who are under this condemnation, who use the name of the Lord and use it in vain, having not authority. Isn't that how we started this revelation? Again, he's, he's bookending it in the very first verse. Those who call themselves the people of the Lord. But do you deserve that title? Or have you taken his name in vain? Are you claiming his authority when you don't have it? Do you claim membership when your discipleship leaves something to be desired? Remember, the Lord will not be mocked in the last days. We cannot bear his name without being worthy of it. Verse 63, Wherefore let the church repent of their sins, and I, the Lord, will own them. Otherwise they shall be cut off. You see him striving valiantly to balance justice and mercy in this revelation and in the previous few revelations? Remember which audience you are at any given moment in your life and gravitate to whichever side of that spectrum you need to be pulled in the direction of. If you need the voice of justice, soften your heart and, and open yourself to it. If you need the voice of mercy, then accept it and be reassured here, let the church repent. I'm letting you. There's mercy. I, the Lord, will own them. I want to claim them. They're claiming me, whether or not they deserve to do so. But I will own them. There's his mercy again. Otherwise, they shall be cut off. They'll be cutting themselves off. There's the justice. 64, remember that which cometh from above is sacred. After all, I am from above. I'm sacred. It must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. And in this there is no condemnation. And ye receive the Spirit through prayer, wherefore without this there remaineth condemnation. Are we praying? Are we receiving the Spirit? Are we speaking carefully about heavenly things? Verse 65, Let my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon seek them a home as they are taught through prayer by the Spirit. So they too need to pray. They too need to seek the Spirit. Up to this point, Joseph and his family had been living on the Morley farm. But since Titus Billings is the agent for it, has already been told in this revelation, dispense of the property so that you're ready to go whenever the Lord calls you. Well, Joseph Smith needs to be prepared in similar ways. So even the, the leaders of the church are not exempt from these kinds of inconveniences and self-sacrifices. So Joseph, you're going to need to find a new place to stay. Sydney, you too. And they both end up leaving the Morley farm and going to the John Johnson farm. Again, that same wonderful couple, John and Elsa, whose faith preceded the miracle of Elsa's healing. They weren't seeking a sign to, to develop faith. The sign sought them as a result of the faith they already had. And then the section ends in verse 66. These things remain to overcome through patience. 
that such may receive a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Otherwise, a greater condemnation. Amen. Some kind of abrupt ending there. Which do you want, glory or condemnation? Mercy, justice, it's all right before you. I won't even call them commandments, but there's my will. How will you accept and act upon these things? There are things to overcome. The congregations of the wicked, sure, but more importantly, the wickedness that is within and among you. You've got to overcome your pride and your stubbornness, Sydney. You've got to overcome any kind of sense of ownership and possessiveness about your store. I mean, the store. No, okay, Whitney. You've got to overcome your wickedness and your rebelliousness and your unbelief. All of you saints, you've got to overcome your impatience of wanting to jump the gun and get down to Zion before you're spiritually prepared to receive it. And that's why I love that phrase. You are, these things remain to overcome through patience. This is not the work of a day. It is the day of the Lord and his day cometh quickly. But that's in his perspective. And we do have time that he has given us to be able to make these kinds of spiritual changes that are necessary. Even when it speaks of, of the city of Enoch being caught up to heaven, it says that it happened in process of time. So if you or I are struggling with any of the kinds of sinfulness or selfishness that section 63 ch chastens, be patient with yourself and rest assured that God is patient with you as well. Be up and doing. Uh, temper your patience with some zeal. Strike the balance in this as well. But don't beat yourself up for not already being in Zion. Because it takes a lot of prior preparation, a lot of work, a lot of repentance on our part to get there. So as James said in his epistle in the New Testament, let patience have her perfect work. The Lord is working on us. And he is patient with us. Can we be patient with ourselves? Let patience have her perfect work. Let this gradual change and growth take place within us. The Lord is making a Zion people in preparation for a Zion place. And as he promises here, a weight of glory awaits us.